Good afternoon. My name is Joanne Mitchell, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Princeton University's celebration of the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank the Planning Committee for the enormous amount of time and energy they've devoted to making this program a success. Please join me in recognizing Robert Durkee, the committee chair, and Alice Kokoris, vice chair of the committee, and all of the members of the committee who serve so well to make this program a success. Today we honor Dr. King for his unwavering commitment to the transformation of this nation into one that lives up to the true meaning of its creed. We hope that this program is a fitting tribute to the vision, courage, integrity, and commitment to service that were the hallmarks of Dr. King's leadership of the civil rights movement. More than three decades have passed since the dreamer was silenced, and it falls to each of us to ensure that his vision of a beloved community his dream of racial equality and harmony, and his call for social and economic justice become realities. On the night before he was killed, Dr. King urged us to rise up with greater readiness, to stand up with greater determination, and to move on in these powerful days of challenge because we have the opportunity to make America a better nation. Those words are as meaningful today as they were 30 years ago. And so this afternoon, as we gather to celebrate what would have been his 73rd birthday, I can think of no more fitting a tribute to his memory than that each of us renew our commitment to ensuring that his dream lives. Last May, when Mr. Rawson, chair of the university's board of trustees, announced that the appointment of Shirley M. Tellman as Princeton's 19th president, he described her as epitomizing Princeton's fundamental commitments to scholarship, teaching, and service to others. Since taking office last June, President Tillman has demonstrated herself to be a visionary leader who shares Dr. King's commitment to equality and social justice. It is a great pleasure to present to you President Shirley Tillman. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to um, join Vice Provost Mitchell in welcoming all of you here to Princeton University today to celebrate the life and the legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. I'd especially like to welcome the students who are here today who took up the challenge of writing an essay to our new governor, Jim McGreevy to challenge him to think about the ways in which his administration can promote the causes that were so important to Dr. King. I would like to welcome the parents and the teachers who encouraged those students to uh, participate in the essay contest, the results of which we are here in part to celebrate today. This is an occasion where we do two things. We remember Martin Luther King, the man, a man with a voice as powerful as any this country has ever heard, who gave visibility and leadership to the civil rights movement in this country, who helped to make change in American law 
and society that has benefited all of us so much in the years uh, since his death, who earned respect around the world for his his commitment to equality, to justice, to freedom, and to peace, who in fact won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work and who ultimately gave his life for his beliefs. In addition to remembering the man, we also remember his dream. This program gives us an annual opportunity at Princeton to rededicate ourselves to the values and the goals that he so eloquently articulated and for which he so passionately fought. Princeton had two opportunities in the early 1960s to hear Dr. King in person. The first of those visits is commemorated by a plaque in the chapel that was placed there at the initiative of our students who continue to appreciate and honor the timelessness of Dr. King's message. It is exceedingly important that each new generation hear this message and appreciate its continuing power, which is why the essay and poster contests are such an important element of our program. I offer my heartiest congratulations to this year's winners, who in their words and in their art have captured the spirit of Dr. King's work. I would also like to thank Reverend Suarez and the members of the Praise Ensemble from his church for coming today and helping us celebrate Martin Luther King. Lastly, I think all, thank all of you for being here today to help us honor this great American. I very much hope that those of you who are outside the university community will return to campus often to participate in the academic, cultural, and athletic events that are available to members of the broader community. Thank you very much. Now you're in for a musical treat. The Praise Ensemble from the First Baptist Church in Lincoln Gardens will be performing for us. Following the, this selection by the Praise Ensemble, we will hear from Robert Durkee, who will announce and congratulate the winners of the essay and poster contest. And following Mr. Durkee will be another selection from the Praise Ensemble.
Christ has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought. I'll tell you one thing, I'm glad we're going to hear them twice more today. That was terrific. As President Tillman said, for this year's essay contest, we asked students in grades 7 to 12 to write a letter to Governor McGreevy advising him on what he should say and do to increase understanding and improve relations among people of all races in New Jersey and help our state achieve the goals of Dr. King especially in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11th and the threats regarding anthrax. The essay writers had much good advice, as you can see from the excerpts in your programs. There are actually additional excerpts available on the university's website, and I encourage you to take a look at them as well. For our poster contest, we asked students to create posters that could hang in the governor's office to remind him of the importance of Dr. King's dreams and of working together to make them come true. You can see some of the spectacular results of the students' hard work and creativity on the stage behind me and in the lobby, and I invite you to take a closer look at the posters at the end of our program. We received 465 essays this year from students in 18 schools. I would like now to present the prizes to the winners, beginning with grades 7 and 8. Let me ask the 7th and 8th grade winners to come forward onto the stage. Let's give them a hand as they do. Six students are being awarded honorable mention. In addition to a certificate, they will receive a T-shirt. Let me show you one here. That has one of the first prize posters on the front and the other one on the back. Now, we appreciate the poster contest entries for many reasons. 
The uh, honorable mention uh, winners for this year, as I said, there are uh, six of them, um, although I believe that a couple of them have not made it here uh, today. They will get their uh, prizes uh, separately. But let me begin uh, first with Summit Agrawal, an eighth grader at Melvin H. Krebs Middle School in East Windsor. And I believe Sarah Martin is one of the people not here. Um, and so I will move on then to Angelica Richardson, who is a seventh grader at Joyce Kilmer Middle School in Texas. Also not here is uh, Maritza Santiago from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in Trenton. But uh, here, and our next winner, is Molly Taft, a seventh grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And also Jonas Verhayen, an eighth grader at Timberlane Middle School in Pennington. We have a uh, second prize winner, and that is Peter Walker, a seventh grader at the Chapin School in Princeton. When it came to first prize this year, which includes a $100 cash award in addition to the certificate and the uh, T-shirt, the judges decided that we simply had to name two winners. Our two winners wrote very different but excellent essays. One of them, Christian Hinez, an eighth grader from Crossroads Middle School in South Brunswick, is no stranger to this stage. In fact, he may have qualified by now for the Guinness Book of Records. As a fourth grader and a fifth grader, Christian won honorable mention in the poster contest. As a sixth grader, he won first prize in that contest. Last year, he moved to the essay contest and won first prize. This year, he is again a first prize winner. So for the fifth consecutive year, I am pleased to present a prize to Christian Hinez. He also may have the world's largest uh, T-shirt collection, <laughs> several of which he designed. Our other first prize winner is Mike Shao an eighth grader at Grover Middle School in West Windsor. Uh, this is Mike's first award in this program, but we'll hope to see him again, too, in future years. Let me now ask the winners in grades 9 and 10 to come forward. As you can see, it's going to take just an extra moment uh, uh, here for one of our prize winners. Here again, we have, I'm going to begin with the uh, honorable mentions. There are four uh, honorable mention winners. Um, and let me begin with Sabina Berry, a 10th grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. 
Uh, next, uh, Thano Chandra Shankar, a 10th grader at West Windsor Plainsboro High School North in West Windsor. Uh, Leslie Hart, a 10th grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And also a 10th grader from Stewart Country Day School, Tara Malone. Our second prize winner uh, here on his crutches is Julian Fong, a 9th grader from West Windsor Plainsboro High School South in West Windsor. And our uh, uh, first prize winner this year is another previous winner. Uh, Kavita Matthews is a 10th grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton, and she won an honorable mention in this category last year. This year, we are pleased to present her with first prize. And finally, for the essay contest, let me ask the winners for grades 11 and 12 to come to the stage. Here, too, I'm going to begin with the uh, honorable mentions, and in this category, we also have a repeat winner. Um, our first uh, honorable mention winner is Alex Goodman, who also received honorable mention as a 10th grader two years ago. Uh, he is now a 12th grader at Princeton High School, Alex Goodman. Uh, also, Tane Parekh an 11th grader at West Windsor Plainsboro uh, South in West Windsor. And the third honorable mention winner, uh, Anna Southoff from Stewart Country Day School, uh, was not able to be with us today. The second prize winner in this category is Jenna Hess, a 12th grader from Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And our first prize winner for this category, uh, Ari Emmert, an 11th grader from West Windsor Plainsboro High School South in West Windsor. All right, let me now invite the winners in the poster contest to come forward. And as they do, let's give them a hand. There were uh, 386 posters that we received this year from students in uh, 17 schools. And uh, I'm going to begin uh, by announcing uh, the first of the honorable mentions. Unfortunately, they are not here. And can I ask you guys to just step back a little bit? Thank you. <laughs> um, Kyle and Ryan uh, Zepiel are twins. 
and they are fifth graders at Antile School in Ewing, and those of you who were here last year uh, may remember that they were the first prize winners last year. Uh, they have received an honorable mention this year but could not be here uh, today. But here today for honorable mention, uh, first we have Mariel Jenkins, a fifth grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Another fifth grader at Stewart is Emily Scott. Now we have um, the poor judges had a serious problem in this in this contest. Uh, we decided that we simply had to award uh, two second prizes. Um, one of them um, is Christina here. She is here. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, one of them, and let me present it now, is to Christina Cuneo, uh, a fifth grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And also receiving second prize is Olivia Santoro, a fifth grader at the Science School in Hamilton. Now, finally, um, the judges also decided that we had to award two first prizes. Um, gives us a front and a back for the T-shirt. Um, but as you'll see, if you look at the posters, it would be impossible to choose between them. So we awarded two first prizes. Now, one of them is to a student whose last name may be familiar to you, since her brother was on this stage just a short while ago and for the last five years. Uh, she is Sofia Hinez, a fourth grader at Indian Hills Elementary School in Dayton. And our other first prize winner is Kylan Johnson, a fourth grader at the Antile School in Ewing. All right, let me ask you to join in one final round of applause for all of our winners. We hope to see many of you back again in future years. And now, back to the Praise Ensemble.
his throne amazing grace how sweet the sound that a
Wow, that was wonderful. Let's hear it again, the praise ensemble. I am Lauren Robinson Brown, University Director of Communications, and I'm also former Assistant Secretary of State. So what that means is I've previously worked for the man I'm here to introduce. But before I do that, I want to congratulate again all of our wonderful participants in our essay contest. You know, I wrote my very first essay when I was in the first grade, and it was all about Martin. His wisdom has remained with me ever since, and I wish the same for each and every one of you. Those of you who wrote essays had to put yourselves in the shoes of a state leader and imagine what you could do to make a difference. Now I'd like to introduce you to such a leader, a man who has used his voice to magnify the needs of the voiceless. He is a man of faith who has inspired the hopeless. He is a man of focused passion and of determined courage who has helped raise the collective consciousness of New Jersey's leaders and public servants. Appointed Secretary of State in 1999 by then-Governor Christy Whitman, DeForest Buster Stories quickly elevated the agendas of people who normally do not cast votes, young people, poor people, and otherwise disenfranchised people. He made history when he created the first state agency to empower youth and then set out on a crusade that took him to every county, spreading an anti-violence and pro-intelligence message. He won't tell you, but I will, that he played an instrumental role in getting the state to make dramatic leaps in its handling of delicate issues, including racial profiling, education reform, and urban decay. And all the while, he managed to keep his congregants happy and his church growing as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens. He is one of the smartest people I know. And one of the things that I admire most about him is that no matter how brilliantly he sh his star shines, he never forgets to reach back and pull others along. More than that, he teaches others how to follow. In that sense, he has certainly earned the title of most king-like of all New Jersey native sons. Known nationally for his orations, his expansive ideas, and his win-win deal-making, Soares brought the state government a much-needed combination of practicality, compassion, and wisdom. Just one week out of state office, many are watching for his next move, and whichever direction he goes, his path is guided and fortified by visionaries like Dr. King. So we shall expect nothing but greatness. With that expectation, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our keynote speaker, Buster Soares. Thank you so much. After receiving an introduction that was as exaggerated as that one, uh, one preacher said that his introducer had said nothing true, but his hope was that the audience would believe every word of it. <laughs> I'd like to thank Lauren for that wonderful introduction, and uh, I'd like you to believe every word of it. I am I'm thrilled to be here today to, uh, to the president and her leadership team and to these outstanding award recipients. I'm kind of mad at you because it means that my boys have work to do to be like you. Um, and to all of you who have gathered on this day, 
let me thank you because if if I've received nothing else today, I have in this context for the first time in my life seen these people behind me take a bow. <laughs> Where we're from, when they're finished, we do everything but bow, trust me. But uh, you've come a long way, praise team. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with your bow. That's not very Baptist, but... <laughs> I've seen Baptists shout, I've seen Baptists dance, I've seen Baptists cry, and I've lived long enough to see Baptists bow. When Martin Luther King's father was asked how he knew his son would be a leader, he described a letter that Martin Luther King Jr. had written to the Atlanta Constitution newspaper when he was 15 years old. And it was Martin's words at 15, his insights, his passion for justice, his sense of what was right and wrong that caused his father to know that he was raising a child who would be great. And as I read the essays written by these award recipients, as I saw the posters that depicted artistic vision of a better tomorrow, I realized about these young people, what Martin Luther King's father realized about him. We are living in the presence of greatness. Thank you for your genius and your willingness to show us the future. I was in the bathroom shaving not long ago, and my sons came into the bathroom and locked the door. That's not a good sign. <laughs> but they wanted my undivided attention, and they've learned that they can speak without much response while I'm shaving. <laughs> and so the oldest was the spokesman, and when the oldest is the spokesman, I know it's about to cost me some money. Malcolm looked at me and said, Dad, when do we get our laptops and our cell phones? At that time, they were 11 years old. And I thought to myself, I'm going to answer this right away. And without missing a stroke, I kept shaving. And I looked in the mirror and answered with these words, you will get your laptops and your cell phones when you get your college degrees and your jobs. That was it. Martin then unlocked the door, they left the bathroom, and then I had to pray to ask God to forgive me for lying. <laughs> there is a part of me that resents the fact that the world is changing so rapidly. And there is a part of me that's intimidated by the fact that my boys seem to know things now that I'm sure I didn't know when I was their age. As a matter of fact, I'm still learning some at my age. And so my answer was driven by that emotion inside of me. But the truth is, as rapidly as life is changing, it's more likely than not that my sons will get laptop computers and cell phones long before they finish high school. 
First of all, the cell phone bill is cheaper than the real phone bill. <laughs> and I stood there and thought to myself, how could you say that? And a part of me said back to me, I know exactly how you can say that. When you were a kid, there was no such thing as a laptop or a cell phone. The only thing I knew about a laptop when I was 11 years old was that my grandmother had a lap and I loved sitting on top of it. That was my laptop. <laughs> and I hate to even admit to you scholars and artists what a cell phone was back in my day. A friend of mine, when we finished college, when we finished high school, committed a crime, went to jail. He lived in a cell. Once a month, they'd bring him the phone. And that's, that's, what, a, that's what a cell phone was. And so I look around at all of the things that, that young people now take for granted, and it's clear that we live in a world that, when we were children, we would have considered science fiction. But there are some things that never change. And one of the unchanging truths about our lives is that if things are going to get better, someone's got to make it happen. Computers can't do it by themselves. Technology will never bring us together. But one of the reasons we're able to celebrate at the finest institution of higher learning any place in America, the first woman to be president of this institution, is because things get better when people make a difference. I was appointed the 30th Secretary of State by the first woman to be governor of New Jersey. And when I first started describing that experience with great joy, I would proclaim the fact that here I stand in a state that 100 years ago would not let women go to college. And now 100 years later, a woman is in charge of everything. Here I stand today in an institution that would not allow women to enroll in it. Now not only do we have outstanding, brilliant female students, but we have the outstanding academic leader of America in charge. Things change because people make them better. And so in spite of the fact that we live in the greatest country in the world at the greatest time in the world, it's no secret that we still have things that need to be changed. And some of those changes were articulated in the letters that were crafted for our new governor. Many of those changes became visible on September 11th, when for the first time as a nation we felt more vulnerable than we've ever felt since our founding. It was only five hours after the attack on the World Trade Center that I was at Ground Zero. I had been flown to Jersey City by state police helicopter, ferried to New York City by state police boat, driven to Ground Zero by the Coast Guard. And what I saw with my eyes indicated that my life and our country would never be the same. I watched steel melting like butter in a microwave oven. I saw grown men in uniforms weeping like babies. It was the middle of the afternoon, 
but the dust and debris had created an atmosphere like midnight. And it was clear to me that what happened that morning was different than anything we had ever experienced. It was different than the debates that we normally have where people from one philosophy are on one side and people from another philosophy are on another side because when those maniacs steered those jets into the Twin Towers, they weren't aiming at any particular philosophical bent. They were aiming at Americans. It was different than the discussions we have about cultural diversity where we clap on one and three, you clap on two and four, we eat sweet potato pie, you eat pumpkin pie. We have different tastes and different cultures. Some speak with accents, some speak with a kind of phraseology that's unique to them. But on September 11th, when, when the World Trade Centers fell, they fell irrespective of our backgrounds because the enemy of terror aimed itself not at any ethnic group but at America. In Washington, D.C., when I went to speak to federal employees whose families had been slain in the Pentagon, I realized that I was not at a Christian event or a Muslim event or a Hindu or Buddhist event. I was not speaking to people whose primary concern was whether or not I was a Christian clergyman. They were there sharing a mutuality of pain because the victims in the Pentagon were from every religious background and those who have no religion at all. I realized on September 11th that what was attacked was larger than the normal ways we see ourselves. Well, I see myself as a Baptist, and this school has Presbyterian roots. I remember having decided that I would go to study theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. Many of my friends thought I had lost my mind. Here I was. I had grown up in a Seventh-day Adventist home. I had gone to a Catholic college. I was a black Baptist preacher going to Presbyterian school. They thought I was absolutely confused. Then some argued when I graduated, I was definitely confused. <laughs> But on September 11th, those kinds of distinctions became less and less important because what was under attack was not our individual identities, but what was under attack was our way of life. And so we have a consensus now, Democrats and Republicans, rural and urban, wealthy and not so wealthy, we agree that we have a right as a nation to protect our borders from any further attacks. And while we have to be careful to craft our response to minimize the pain of the innocent, we do have a right to protect our future from the kind of terror that caused so many deaths on September 11th. And we further have to be careful to know that what happened on September 11th was not the result of religion, it was the result of insanity. Muslims are not our enemy, but terror is. But as we protect ourselves from that kind of terror, and as we consider what happened and how our future has been shaped, what's unavoidable is that we capture the words of these essays which sought to really describe what is our way of life. 
If terrorism sought to attack our way of life, if we are on foreign soil now defending our way of life, then the onus is on us to define what is our way of life. And our way of life is described in some very explicit words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all of us are created equal, that we're endowed by God with certain rights, and among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And whether it's writing an essay or marching down a dusty road in Birmingham, Alabama, our country needs people who are willing to sustain our way of life. Our way of life is described when we pledge allegiance to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We didn't write these words. We inherited these words, and that is our way of life. Our way of life is described by that Latin phrase that we've captured as our motto, e pluribus unum, we are many, but we are one. And in spite of my background, my preferences, my ethnicity, my theology, my age or income, I am a part of that many. And the reason we begin our year, therefore, celebrating the life of a black Baptist preacher is because he best captured the language and personified the ethic of our way of life. And so we pause with our children to celebrate the birth and life of Martin Luther King, Jr. Not because he was famous, for unfortunately, our culture has reduced itself now to only worshiping those heroes who are famous. And so if fame creates greatness, then Dr. King is no different than Dr. Dre. No, Dr. King was not great because he was famous. He was famous because he was great, and he was great because of what he did to help our country. We are blessed to have young people, those who are here and those that they represent, who understand the value of living a life of value. I'm fortunate to have traveled throughout this state speaking to almost 100,000 young people about avoiding the kind of violence that became evident at Columbine and other places. And I contend to you today Dr. King's response to our challenge of helping America by perfecting the art of nonviolence is as urgent an issue today as it was in 1968. My heart bleeds when I think about the fact that at Martin Luther King High School in New York City, on Martin Luther King's birthday, a young man took a gun to school and two children became the victims of violence. Whether it is putting graffiti on the walls of public buildings, whether it's painting swastikas in fields or in bathrooms, whether it's describing people with racial epithets, 
whether it's looking down our noses at recent immigrants who may speak with a different accent, or whether it's simply laughing at people because they look differently, they are shaped differently, or they speak differently. Dr. King calls upon us to dedicate our lives to eradicating violence as a way of life. On September 10th, there was a particular company that had intended to release a movie featuring a very famous popular actor who gets paid at least $20 million every time he appears. And because of September 11th, that same company decided that it would be inappropriate to release a motion picture that was that violent. I contend if that picture was too violent to release on September 12th, that picture was too violent to release on September 10th, brainwashing our children into a lifestyle that's inappropriate. And so when I became Secretary of State, my, my sons just loved my position. They did everything except order business cards. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I've been out of office one week now, and I'm about to find a counselor to help my son with the, with the transition that he's got to go through because I'm no longer there. We went to Florida, and when we got there, soon after becoming Secretary of State, my boys looked at me and said, Dad, do you still have your power? Because I didn't know what they meant. And so I probe, what do you mean by power? And they said, well, Dad, you're the Secretary of State of New Jersey. We're in Florida now. Do you still have your power? <laughs> so first I gave them the constitutional answer. No, I don't have any constitutional or statutory responsibility in Florida. Of course, a year later, I was quite grateful I'm not the Secretary of State of Florida. <laughs> and I told them, no, you can't ride around with the state police in Florida. But I did want them to know my parental answer to the question. I wanted them to know that I still had my power. That although I had no title, I had no responsibility authority in that state, I wanted them to know that I still had the power to be a good father. I still had the power to be a faithful husband. That I still have the power to respect people irrespective of their backgrounds that we as a family had power enough to stop our car. If we see someone on the side of the road who's stuck, we had the power to get out of our car and lend them a helping hand. I wanted my boys then, as I always want them to know, that we have our power because power is not in titles. Rather, power is in values. Dr. King said it best. He said everybody can be great because everybody can serve. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we stand and sit and sing and worship and listen together on King Day, that we leave programs like this committed to the kind of togetherness that we celebrate momentarily in halls like these. That we will have a passion for making things better that would cause us to rise above our egos, rise above our differences, put aside our partisan beliefs to do whatever it takes to make sure that New Jersey and America is the place we want our children to inherit. And that we will never forget the fact that Dr. King did what he did and died at 39 years old because he believed that there was a God who had created a universe which even in its imperfection called for and demanded justice. 
he functioned in the spirit and tradition of the Old Testament prophet. He said, I will live in a manner that God requires by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly before God. If our new governor takes your advice, he will be a great governor, not because he's famous, but because he did what he should do to make your futures the kind of futures God would have you possess. Thank you for allowing me to participate. Secretary Soares for that eloquent speech and for the challenge that's before us. Now sec the Secretary has agreed that he would accept questions or entertain questions at this point. So if you have a question, if you'd let us know, we'd recognize you at this time. This is really not church. We don't have questions and answers in church. <laughs> no bowing and no questions. <laughs> Yes, I see you, ma'am. Great. She wants you to know that there's a group called Do Something, founded by a friend of mine out of Newark, and there's a website which, if you log on to it, gives you good suggestions and, and good guidelines for being the kind of person who makes a difference. Thank you. Who else? Yes, ma'am. The thousands of incarcerated youth. Um, when I was 19 years old, uh, I was kidnapped by, by drug dealers because I was leading an anti-drug campaign. And uh, a police officer saved my life, but they promised they'd come back and kill me. And in response to that, I borrowed a pistol from someone who, uh, who had a gun, and I thought the right thing to do was to protect myself, and I was arrested. And I spent the night in jail, and if you look up my criminal record, you'll see that I, I was on probation. But that didn't stop me from being who I am and doing what I do. You can make a mistake and still make it in life. Way up top. What can we do to end racial profiling? We need... To, in, to ensure that the governor makes it a priority because the state police work for the attorney general, the attorney general works for the governor, and the governor has to make sure it's a priority and not underestimate the problem. Number one, the problem is systemic and not a few bad apples, and racial profiling is just as damaging to the people who are not victims as it is the people who are victims. It's, we, we, we are too far along in history to allow that kind of discrimination to be a part of our society.
Having said that, there is a difference between racial profiling and criminal profiling. Criminal profiling is a legitimate tool of law enforcement to find the bad people. Racial profiling assumes you're a bad person simply because of your race. Well, I think um, the question is, what can we do to get urban kids and suburban kids involved with each other and create more opportunities for young people to be involved in wholesome activities? Uh, we have to do it. That, that those of us who have jobs and careers and are grown, we have got to take time out of our busy schedules and dedicate that time to young people. We have to make time for our kids. Kids cannot raise themselves. Kids cannot take themselves camping. Kids cannot engage themselves in activities without the wholesome input and participation of young people. The Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the churches, the synagogues, and every organization that I know of that works with youth needs more volunteers. And if we get more involved as adults with children, then we'll have better results from the children themselves. And that's why I am just, and I meant to say this earlier, but I think we should really be grateful. Here we have... The, the, the number one institution of higher learning in America that is not so busy being Princeton that they haven't taken time to connect with the kids in our local neighborhood. Let's give Princeton a round of applause. This is Sam Stewart talking, the proud superintendent of schools of the district where we have that Guinness Hall of Records guy. He's winning these prizes. Go ahead, Sam. Question is, what can schools do as institutions of learning? Two things. Number one, expect the best from every child. That if every adult in the school expects the best from every child in the school, and not let children believe that something about their circumstances, something about their family, something about their hairstyle, something about their weight inherently prevents them from being excellent, then schools will be great schools. Second thing is schools, that's number one. Second thing schools have to do is not try it alone. There is no school in America that has everything it needs to raise our children. Unfortunately, too many parents drop their children off in kindergarten, want to pick them up in 12th grade and let the schools raise their children. <laughs> schools are now built to raise children. And the schools need the pizza shop, the university campus, the, the synagogue, the church. Schools need the entire community to take responsibility for helping with our children. What's amazing to me is that the whole community takes credit when a child does well and then blame the school when the child does poorly. You can't have it both ways. Can't have it both ways. You, oh, oh you just waving. I, I, 
I thought she wanted to ask a question. She just said, that's what I'm used to. Just. <laughs> this is getting good. We're going to have church in a minute. Yes. Yes, ma'am. I do. Yeah, the question is, uh, is there anything I can say to the, to the young fathers? I have the same thing to say to the old fathers that I have to say to the young fathers. And here's what I have to say to all fathers. It's fun making babies. Let's not play games. It's fun. And if you enjoy the thrill of making babies, you ought to have the will to raise those babies. Um, and that's not to suggest that things don't happen between couples and that every marriage is going to make it, but my two sons will only have one father. I'm the only biological father they have. It is my absolute responsibility to invest everything I can in them so that they will grow up to be healthy men. And one of the problems we have with, with, with uh, a, a culture that has such ambivalence about manhood is that we have so many boys that have grown up seeing distorted images of manhood. You know, we talk about violence. The most dangerous place in America for a woman is at home. And more women will be the victims of domestic violence than they ever will be terroristic violence. And if boys grow up watching their mothers beat by their husbands and their boyfriends, they too will become violent, and that's something Congress can't change. We've got to do that ourselves. So, fellas, if you don't plan to raise the baby, just chill. Yeah. I talked about this somewhat in church yesterday. The question is, what do I think Dr. King would say about the moral lessons of Enron? It, um, you know, I, I have to tell you this before I answer the question. I, I saw Enron happening um, three years ago. I wasn't in government. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a stockbroker. But Enron came to New Jersey and tried to put PSE&G out of business by offering to sell natural gas at such a low rate that they were going to lose money. And their strategy was to lowball the bid, get the deal, and then jack the prices up later on. Any company that large that practices like that is in trouble. Now, having said that, Dr. King believed that there are some things the government must do. And one of those things is to protect its citizens from the unscrupulous behavior of people in power, whether it's public power or private power, that could make decisions that negatively impact their futures. Now, Dr. King was dealing with sheriffs and mayors and governors who use their power to keep races down. But what, what's the difference between using your power to keep a kid out of school and using your power to steal somebody's retirement money after you've cashed in? There's no difference. 
And there are some things government must do. And I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. If you are in government, you have a responsibility because of what you know before other people know it to do something that protects people from being ripped off the way Enron ripped off the whole country. So I guess the truth is I don't know what Dr. King would say, but that's what I got to say. (laughs) I don't know. Anybody else? Sir. Question is, being a Baptist minister and having been in government, what's my position on prayer in school? My position is that government should do nothing to sponsor prayer or restrict prayer in school. And so as a Baptist minister, as Secretary of State, it was not my prerogative to lead prayer meetings, but it also was my right to pray when I chose. Government should either sponsor prayer nor restrict prayer because prayer is personal. And if it's restricted, that means you can't be you inside a school. If it's sponsored and you don't want to pray, then you're forced to pray inside a school. And I think the Constitution suggests that government should neither be in charge of religion or deny religion. And that's the, what, what we call the separation of church and state. One more question and then I'm gone. i got to speak again tonight. <laughs> Sir. Do I have any thoughts about joining the McGreevy administration? Uh, no, I don't have any thoughts about that. <laughs> Thank you again for the wonderful speech and for the wonderful responses to some challenging questions. One of the things we thought we would do this afternoon that's somewhat different than what we may have done in the past is to allow Dr. King an opportunity to have some words of his own for the audience. So following the words from me, you will hear from Dr. King himself, who will give a brief speech, and then followed by that, you will have a final selection from the Praise Ensemble, and we will be adjourned. Thank you all so much for coming. Congratulations again to our young people, and keep on keeping on. Thank you. I believe that we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man into the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. And somehow, I still have faith that keeps me going through these difficult days. I hope that we will develop the coalition of conscience and will solve this problem. I'll tell you why I have the faith, and it is because of universities like this, with thousands of young people, black and white, who have the new vision that we need in this age, and so I haven't lost faith in the future. I think we're going to reach the goal that we seek, and so I can still sing, we shall overcome. I know many can't sing it now. But I can still sing it because I believe the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed earth will rise again. 
We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And so with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, stone of hope. With this faith, we will move toward that day. And we will transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will speed up the day when all men, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, believers and non-believers, will be able to join hands right in this nation and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
might just pray. 